Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Burrows of the Dead. Burrows of the Dead is one of our favorite ghost tours in New York City. It's been named one of the top ghost tours in the country and is completely locally and independently owned and woman-operated. This year, they're celebrating five years in business. For the past five years, Burrows of the Dead has been devoted to meticulously researched tours that unearth strange and macabre histories across the boroughs. To celebrate their anniversary, they're offering 20% off with offer code BOWERY5. That's B-O-W-E-R-Y-5. Good on any tour through October 31st. Find tickets at burrowsofthedead.com. The Bowery Boys, episode 274, The Ghosts of Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With our annual Ghost Stories of Old New York podcast. Now this year, we're taking a little inspiration from our show we did last year, which was confined to one particular neighborhood, Greenwich Village. Today, we're taking the E-Train uptown, the E-Train for Eerie, to Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, a neighborhood with a rather notorious past. Now... Obviously, today, it's pretty easy to find spirits in Hell's Kitchen. I mean, Ninth Avenue is lined with bars, <laughs> literally. Uh-huh. But we're going back to a Hell's Kitchen of townhouses, of stables, of taverns. We're going back to a Hell's Kitchen of otherworldly spirits. Hell's Kitchen may not necessarily seem like a spooky neighborhood, but after you have digested the stories in this show, you may think twice before stepping foot into the neighborhood again. Um, speaking of digesting, Greg, <laughs> we must mention, as we often do, it really this is the only show in which we thoroughly describe the studio surroundings yeah. um, and what we're eating. Mm-hmm. This is also one of the only shows when we eat while recording. Yeah, we have... Um, we just have to get in the mood. Yeah, we have uh, some delicious donuts, as always. As every year, we have great donuts. But of course... I think those are called dunkers. Dunkers, They're even. sort of like okay. half donuts, yeah. Well, but then the whole studio is uh, is in a festive Halloween mood. We have our Halloween lights, a, a new addition, some pumpkin lights. We have, of course, Cheryl Crow here. You dusted her off and put her on the bookshelf <laughs> behind us. She is a little different this year. You've stuck a googly eye on her. <laughs> you have googly eyes on everything. Googly eyes on the microphones. Googly eyes on Cheryl Crow. And, and by the way, for those who don't know the story of Cheryl Crow, we're talking about a crow that Greg has named Cheryl. Yes. Just a, a point of clarification. Oh, and um, hanging from the computer is the skeleton of a bat, of a vampire bat. And his name, Tom, is Bat Damon. <laughs> Oh, God, you could say I've been afflicted by that joke, Greg. So, listener, grab a donut, pour some cider, perhaps, and join us as we head west to explore the hauntings of Hell's Kitchen.
All right, Craig. Well, it seems that we've we've arrived. Our destination today is Hell's Kitchen, the neighborhood that is west of Manhattan, historically contained west of 8th Avenue to the Hudson River. The northern border is around 59th Street, and the southern border, 39th, 40, sometimes down to 34th Street. And several years ago, we recorded a, a proper history of the neighborhood of mm-hmm. Hell's Kitchen, episode 186. So if you would like a more proper uh, introduction to the history of the neighborhood, including a, a pretty lengthy discussion of how it got this name, yeah, uh-huh. Hell's Kitchen, head back and listen to that episode. Yeah, you bring up a good subject. The name is always, it's, it's intriguing. It's a popular cooking show. <laughs> that, that is true. The name traces back to the 19th century, and there's many rumors and theories as to where the name came from. I think the creepiest and the most famous legend that that people have heard of involves a patrolman named Dutch Fred. Mm. Now, one night while patrolling with his partner, his partner declares, this place is hell. And Dutch Fred responded, hell's a mild climate. This is hell's kitchen. Now, from the very beginning of the history of this neighborhood, it seemed to be a place that was unusually possessed of great violence and trauma. As a result of this, many believe the doors to something more ominous, more otherworldly, have been opened here. And so, before we begin our ghost stories, Tom, I'm going to spend a few minutes discussing Hell's Kitchen's particularly horrible history. Now, this place has been branded with violence and bloodshed, you know, at least since 1863, when a major conflict in the Civil War draft riots took place on 9th Avenue and 40th Street, when rioters set up barricades, placed them in the streets, and this fledgling neighborhood resembled a war zone. But around this period in the 1860s, then, this neighborhood would really have a very bad reputation. Oh, yeah. It would be known for gang activity for decades. Newspapers of the day compared the roaming gangs to nocturnal creatures. They were almost like vampires who would only come out at night. From an 1895 paper, quote, The children of Hell's Kitchen, the noisiest, most mischievous set to be found, Little wolves, some of them. Okay, but Hell's Kitchen wasn't unique in having a bad reputation, no. obviously. But you're you're suggesting that there's something otherworldly or, or rather haunted or supernatural mm-hmm. about the neighborhood. Where does that reputation come from? Well, by the 1870s, and lots of development came in, a lot of tenement construction. Now, this coincided with the rise of spiritualism. In the United States. And by spiritualism, you mean, as we discussed in the recent magic show, communicating with the dead, Ouija boards, uh, seances and such. You know, this whole legion of spiritual communication that popped up during this period. And a lot of these independent operators, these mediums, uh, freelancers, if you will, many of them were attracted to Hell's Kitchen because this was an affordable place to live and an affordable place to set up a business. Hell's Kitchen had hundreds of people in this particular line of work in the late 19th century. And some think that this has opened up this whole area to some sort of otherworldly sensibility. Combine that with the growing violence of the region, this constant gang violence that's occurring. Some claim that the sensitivity has corrupted into a most malevolent manner. And do we know anything about these these mediums who were communicating with the other side? Well, uh, let me tell you about one in particular. Uh, one that we did mention in that Houdini show, uh, a, a spiritual leader by the name of Madame Helena Blavatsky. Now, she was born in Russia in 1831, became a spiritual leader, promoting a mix of alternative spiritualities, a mixture that would come to be called theosophy. In 1873, Blavatsky moved to New York, and many mark 
1875, just two years later, as the birth of the occult movement in America, when she and a few others formed the Theosophical Society, which was centered in her apartment in Hell's Kitchen at 302 West 47th Street, right off of 8th Avenue. Her salon here was called the Lamasary, and all sorts of unconventional spiritual ideas were entertained here. Tom, let me describe her parlor, the Lamasary, written about in an 1877 article in the New York Times. The parlor, or boudoir, in which Madame Blavatsky received her guests bore evidence of the untrammeled tastes of its owner in the shape of a huge tiger's head embedded over the door, a miniature crocodile swinging from the ceiling, and elegant and curious bric-a-brac and articles of virtue distributed about the walls and mantelpieces. In the anteroom into which the guests were first conducted were figures of elephants, mystic triads, and other ornamental symbols. Author Gary Lockman fills out this description even further in his biography of Miss Blavatsky. Quote, Long narrow mirrors stood in the corners of the room, stuffed monkeys hung from the walls, as did several toy lizards. But the most famous was the celebrated stuffed baboon, dressed in a collar, white cravat, and a pair of glasses, and under one of his arms was shoved a manuscript of Darwin's Origin of the Species. Well, that certainly sounds pretty creepy. I mean, you've got a baboon in a cravat. But do we know if anything actually, like, supernatural took place here? Yes, believe it or not. It was reported by several that Blavatsky exhibited psychic and telekinetic powers of her own here in the parlor. One person observed her raise her hand, and a silver spoon materialized through a wall and landed on her fingertips. That's quite a trick. She also claimed to read something called astral light whenever it was present in the room. Each time she felt it, those in the room heard the sound of otherworldly chimes that sounded both near and far away. Where was this place again? Where was her? Where was Blavatsky's house? You said West 47th. Between 8th and 9th Avenues. Today, um, the building in that spot today is an Econo Lodge. That is just a couple blocks away from the, the location of what would become Madison Square Garden mm-hmm. at 50th between 8th and 9th, which would be constructed in the 1920s. I mean, by the early 20th century, the neighborhood's changing, right? It seems like it must be cleaning up somewhat. One might think that, but in fact, the gang activity here would become even more gruesome, more intense. The most violent gang in Hell's Kitchen during the 20th century was a group nicknamed the Westies, which were an Irish-American gang tied to organized crime and were known for absolutely gruesome mob slayings. I mean, they were, they were absolute monsters. How bad were they? Well, I'm afraid to ask. (laughs) Just one example. There was a Westies hangout called the 596 Club, so named because its address was 596 10th Avenue. It was here on May 5th, 1977, that a loan shark by the name of Ruby Stein was murdered and his body dismembered in the women's bathroom of this bar. Later, his headless torso washed up on the shores of Jamaica Bay, leading to the eventual arrest of the men who had murdered him. But for many, many years, there were actually ghost stories associated with this particular bar. Wow, that's gruesome. And mm-hmm. that's got to be that's got to be the most terrifying thing that happened in the entire neighborhood. Well, certainly one of the most real-life horrors in Hell's Kitchen, maybe. But just a few blocks north to a building at West 54th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues. It was there that one of the scariest movies was filmed. Which one? The Exorcist. Now, although the movie is set in Georgetown, Washington, many of the interior scenes were filmed here in Hell's Kitchen at Sesso Studios, including the famous possession scenes of the young girl played by Linda Blair. 
I mean, imagine the most terrifying scenes from that film, the ones that have burned upon your memory, and those were all filmed here in Hell's Kitchen. For example, the scene where the girl's head spins around—that was shot in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, and you may remember, like they can all see their breath. Right. Well, yeah. it's because it was filmed in a refrigerated bedroom that was cooled with four air conditioners, and the temperature would sometimes get like many, many degrees be- below zero. It was so cold that it even would sometimes snow in the studio. Later, a fire destroyed the set mysteriously, and it had to be entirely rebuilt. There, were, and this was just one of several mysterious things that went on during the filming. Ellen Burstyn claimed, "Quote: There were some really strange goings on during the making of the film. We were dealing with some really heavy material, and you don't fool around with that kind of material without it manifesting in some way." The Exorcist opened on December 26, 1973, became one of the most frightening films of all time. Many believe that film forever cursed this spot, although it did later become a Sony Music Studio. Um, It was demolished in 2008, and today it's a condominium. Well, like that bedroom, Greg, I am positively refrigerated with fear right now. (laughs) Um, Chilling, chilling story. That association, however, did not scare off one particular resident of Hell's Kitchen today, for the neighborhood is the headquarters of the official Church of Satan, which is located in Hell's Kitchen. Satan? Okay, no. Moving Moving on. on. Yes, Moving on. Actually, are you done? Yeah, that, that, is, intro? that is my intro to the horrors of Hell's Kitchen. Right. Well, I would like I'm to I'm going to have a donut now. Okay. <laughs> you, enjoy your, you enjoy your donut. I'm going to take us actually down away from... you. That was 54th Street? Where The Exorcist was filmed? Correct. All right. Well, I'm going to take us away from here, downtown 10 blocks, to a townhouse at 428 West 44th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues. The, the house is still there, Greg. It's a lovely 1860s-era brick townhouse with three stories and a basement apartment. There's a, there's a small private garden area in the front with a steep staircase leading up to the front door. Now, in the 1960s, just about 100 years after it was constructed, the home's rather famous owner found herself visited nightly by an unwanted visitor. A ghostly visitor who knocked and banged about the kitchen and finally revealed herself and her tragic past. For this is a story of Hungry Lucy Wreaks Havoc. Okay, well, there is a whole lot of drama in this story. Mm -hmm. A lot of drama, that is, because the townhouse today finds itself on a rather dramatic block. Hmm. You'll find it wedged between the actor's studio and the new dramatists, um, both of which are located in former 19th century churches. Hmm. So it's in between the two. So how could this not be dramatic? So thousands of actors have walked this street over the decades. Tens of thousands. And even lived on this block. But here at 428 West 44th Street, an actress named June Havoc purchased the building in 1962. She was intent on living on the main floor while renting out the other floors to tenants. So June Havoc, can you remind me of something I've seen her in? Was she, was, she was a film and a Broadway star? Oh, and I mean, she has an amazing story. I'd love to do a whole show on her. <laughs> She was a well-known Broadway actress, a film actress, um, a TV actress. She even did soap operas at the end of her career. But her own story is today really often overshadowed by the fictionalized version of her life that was written by her sister, Miss Gypsy Rose Lee. Mm. Now, anybody out there who's familiar with the musical Gypsy, and I have a feeling that's a high percentage of our listeners, Greg, (laughs) you know the story about the young June Havoc, or Baby June, as she was known, on the vaudeville circuit. 
Baby June is rather spoiled by her stage mom, Rose, who and and Baby June later runs off to escape her, you know, overbearing mother. And meanwhile, June's second fiddle sister, Louise, goes on to find stardom in the American burlesque scene as Gypsy Rose Lee. Baby Jane, I mean, Baby June, <laughs> sorry. Baby June uh-huh. was invented for the musical, like this particular no, no, name no. for her? or No, Gypsy Rose Lee took a lot of liberties when she wrote her memoir in 1957, upon which the musical was based. Mm. June, however, did perform in vaudeville as Baby June. Mm-hmm. She did have an overbearing stage mother. All of this is true. She did overshadow her sister, Louise, who would then go on to become Gypsy Rose Lee, a famous burlesque performer. However, Gypsy the Musical forgets to mention that June, Baby June, also goes on to become famous. If you only know the musical, Baby June, June just kind of disappears at the end of it. So we're paying June her due here in this ghost story show. And she deserves it because June went on to star in in movies. She was in The Gentleman's Agreement. She was on TV. She was on Broadway. She was on, she was in Pal Joey on Broadway. And by the way, June was born in Vancouver on November 8th, 1912. Her full name was Ellen June Evangeline Hovick. So she tweaked it she tweaked her maiden name to come up with her stage name, Havoc. All right, so June Havoc mm-hmm. purchases this townhouse on 44th Street. Between 9th and 10th. In 1962, and begins renting out the floors above her to various tenants. What's interesting about 1962, by the way, is that Gypsy had already opened and closed the phenomenally successful first stage version with Ethel Merman. But 1962 is the same year that the film version with Rosalind Russell came out. So she must have felt very much like, you know, part of popular culture. But June is now finding herself quite busy. She has a TV talk show. Uh, She was working on various theater projects with Helen Hayes and others. She thought that this would make a very convenient home base. She, She could easily get to the theaters. That home had been owned for many years uh, by the Rodenberg family. And then it was purchased and it was renovated by a man named Mr. Payne, who then sold it to June Havoc. June moved into the the main floor apartment in 1962, an apartment that had strangely been vacant for many years. It seemed that they were having a hard time renting it out. She found out quickly why, of course, because it turns out that that apartment was noisy. There were banging noises uh, that really often startled her in the middle of the night. Well, I think that sounds like a standard New York City apartment. I think we've all had noisy neighbors. Uh, Or we've had a noisy radiator or that Mm -hmm. one pipe in the corner, you know, the ghost Uh pipe that starts clicking or banging. Uh Well, that's what June thought too. So she just kind of shrugged it off, you know, and maybe thought that earplugs could take care of it. And she just put up with it for a number of years. According to an interview that she gave to the Daily News years later, she was working with Helen Hayes on a show, and she was trying to explain why she looked so tired. I was complaining about a headache I had because of a lack of sleep. I was, I was hearing noises at three or four in the morning. So she called in a plumber to check out the pipes. She called, she called in an architect to check out the floors. Nobody could find any reason why there'd be this tapping noise. Other people heard it too. It wasn't just her. Friends visiting, her cleaning lady, everybody had experienced these noises in Miss Havoc's apartment. What do you even do when something like this happens? Well, you couldn't dial 311 back in 1964. (laughs) No. So she did the second best thing. She got in touch with paranormal researcher and author Hans Holzer, who had written several books on ghost hunting. Well, Holzer decided to investigate, and for that, he would need a medium. Madame Blavatsky, of course, was no longer available. She had passed on to the other world. So he invited instead along a famous British medium, a woman named Sybil Leake. So in 1964... Holzer 
Sybil Leak and a small group of journalists documenting this this whole event. They descended upon June Havoc's kitchen to try to communicate with whatever spirit was creating this noise, and, and they were going to try to get this to stop. So when the group arrived, and, and June Havoc led them back to the kitchen, there was indeed a very loud tapping coming from the kitchen. Holzer tried to speak directly to the spirit. What do you want? He said. And the noise stopped. Now, mind you, this isn't just Holzer's account. This was witnessed by the other journalists. They even had a TV crew in there because June Havoc had a TV show. And this was being recorded for the show. But the whole group sat at a table in the kitchen. And Sybil tilted back her head, closed her eyes, and went into a trance. Suddenly, Sybil started channeling the spirit, speaking as the spirit. When she cried out, Hungry. No food. I want some food. They learned that her name was Lucy, that the year was 1792, and that there wasn't a house there. She wasn't in a kitchen. She was, she was just in a field. Soldiers, in fact, had put her there, had sent her away. There was somebody in charge of the soldiers named Napier. Nobody there would listen to her. And that's why she was making so much noise, because she's hungry and she wanted somebody to listen to her. She said, they picked me up. Man brought me here, put me down on this spot. But she didn't want to leave that spot. But then, then the spirit left Sybil, who woke up out of her trance, and instantly the sound started up in the kitchen again. But wait, it gets creepier. Because then Sybil felt the presence of a young girl in the corner in the living room. So they went in there and they sat around a Victorian table, which they all put their hands on and it started moving and flying around the room. Once it settled down, it started tapping out a code. They recognized that it was a code, so they started counting the taps, one tap for each letter of the alphabet. And slowly, slowly, the spirit was was tapping out a, a message to them. They all listened together. The cameras were on. Everybody witnessed. Tap, 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 tap. L. Tap, 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 tap. E. Tap. A. Followed by V. E. Leave. The table spun out of control, moving and careening, as Holzer described it, around the room. Then it lost its power and collapsed. The party was over. So was that the end of Lucy? Did she leave? Well, I think Lucy wanted them to leave. Although things did die down for a couple of days. Until a few nights later, when June Havoc was startled awake in the middle of the night. This time, the tapping wasn't in the kitchen. Back to that interview in the Daily News, she said, Instead of incessant banging and tapping, there was this hideous screaming... And this time, it sounded like it was coming from within a box directly over me. It was directly above her bed. And meanwhile, they'd been researching the information that they got from the medium during that trance. They looked into Napier, whom Lucy had mentioned, and it turned out that he had been a British officer during the Revolution. Napier's family had died of yellow fever, and he had been sent back to England. So were they ever able to communicate with Lucy again? Well, the next January, 1965, Sybil again went into a trance in the presence of Holzer. She started talking as Lucy this time. She was complaining about all the people and all the activity in that house. She said, people there, too much June, too many clocks. She sings, dances, she makes a lot of noise. I'm hungry. I'm always hungry. You don't do a thing about it. But then Lucy revealed that she was waiting, in fact, for her dear Alfred, a a love of hers named Alfred Bailey. He said that he would come back for her at 3 o'clock in the morning, which is why she's always there and ready at 3 o'clock in the morning. But she can't get out to meet him. 
she can't get up because she's stuck. Holzer spent time encouraging Lucy to leave, to go and find Alfred. He told her that she could find him if she just left this place. June Havoc reported over the next few nights and weeks that the sounds had become much quieter. They were still there, but they were more spread around the house, but much calmer. They did have one more seance, just to check in on everybody to make sure everything was okay. Sybil went into her trance, but Lucy never showed up. Instead, this time, it was Alfred who showed up. He was there, waiting for Lucy. This time, Holzer told Alfred that he must leave. He must tell his officer, Napier, to, to let him go and to go find Lucy. He told him that she had just gone off to meet him. And that, that was the final seance that was ever held in the home. June Havoc's midnight disturbances ceased. Alfred had been convinced to leave in search of his love. And Lucy, well, Lucy finally found the thing that she'd hungered for. Um, by the way, I think that Hungry Lucy has visited our studio, for I see that many of our donuts have disappeared. So while we go fill our plate, uh-huh. um, we will pick up the ghost stories when we, when we return. Yeah, we'll, tr- we'll try to get to the bottom of that not-so-mysterious occurrence <laughs> um, when we return with two more hauntings of Hell's Kitchen. We'll get to those stories after this. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, The Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. All right, well, we're back and ready for two more spooky tales. Where are you taking us for your story? Well, a very historic place within Hell's Kitchen that few know about. Uh, I would even say it's almost secret. It's an enchanting little courtyard and carriage house, almost completely concealed from the street at 420 and 422 and a half West 46th Street. Why, that's just two blocks up from June Havoc's apartment. Mm-hmm. Well, from the street, all you can see is a black gate 
with a sign that has its name on it, Clinton Court. And then there's this long alleyway. And in the distance, you can see this like really beautiful carriage house. But don't envy those who may freely walk into this lovely place. For the name of this story, Tom, is The Alleyway of Terror. Okay, so you you just said that the name is Clinton Court. Mm-hmm. So Clinton, like like New York history, like Governor Clinton, DeWitt Clinton. DeWitt Clinton, former governor of New York, former mayor of New York City. Got the it. man who spearheaded the Erie Canal. Right. And maybe this could even trace to his uncle, George Clinton, who was also a governor of New York, a founding father and vice president under Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. But I am sorry to disappoint you, but the name is a bit of an invention. This alley takes you to a courtyard centered around an old horse stable and carriage house that are indeed over 200 years old. Later residents, though, would tie it, the name, to this to give it some value and some romance to it. You know, Clinton Court sounds very romantic, but it has, there's no evidence that they were actually connected to this. But to be clear, this neighborhood, aside from being known as Hell's Kitchen, is also referred to as Clinton. Well, those in real estate would prefer calling it Clinton. It's a little bit more acceptable. Uh, But that is named for the park, DeWitt Clinton Park, that is further north in the neighborhood um, on the Hudson River. So you have a 200-year-old carriage house and horse stables. In 1850... Uh, Tenements were built facing the street, so placing these buildings officially in a courtyard. There was an alley that was constructed to move horses in and out. But what's curious is this alley today is obviously not big enough for carriage. Which would make the carriages kind of like this tucked away mm-hmm. alternate universe, like yeah. a time capsule back there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the pictures are breathtaking. It really became a magical spot in the 1920s when two architectural sculptors moved in named Raffaello and Giuseppe Menconi. They would turn the stables into an art studio. The New York Times visited the studio in 1936 and saw an unusual collection of figures standing in the courtyard. Quote, a monstrous penguin... A cupid surfboarding on tritons, a stone pelican morosely gazing down a long judicial beak. The building is a two-story tumble-down affair, almost too picturesque. The pair of Italian architectural sculptors who live here live lives of amazing and beautiful detachment among gargoyles and rain spouts that are grinning fawns. Now, later, the art educator Ruth Faison Shaw took over the lease from the brothers. Shaw was the one that actually began calling it Clinton Court. She also, on top of, like, you know, drumming up the romance of the place with this new name, she also began collecting unusual stories associated with the court and the structures within it, documenting curious, unexplained behavior that was associated with this place. Documenting strange experiences? Like Mm -hmm. what? Well, let's begin with what Mrs. Shaw saw herself on the staircase leading to the second floor. So one evening while she was taking a break to work, she went out on that second floor terrace. And when she stepped out, she looked down upon the staircase and she saw a figure standing there. Now for a moment... She thought it was one of her students. You know, maybe it was a neighbor who came by. But as she looked closer, she could see it was a woman and that she could actually see straight through the woman. Miss Shaw later described this, this figure as, quote, a delicate wraith in crinoline, her garment fluttering in a non-existent wind. Uh... I'm sorry, a wraith in crinoline? Mm-hmm. Like an old fabric? Mm-hmm. Like a dress fabric. And do we know who this woman was? I think that we do, actually. And her fate is unfortunately tied to an even older ghost who inhabits this spot. 
In fact, the spirit that actually haunts the courtyard is probably dating from a time from before there was even a stables here. So before this land was carved up into city blocks, right? Before the Hudson River Railroad laid tracks along the water's edge here in Hell's Kitchen, well before it was even called Hell's Kitchen, there was a confluence of streams, of little waterways that met up almost exactly on this spot. This confluence of waters gave the area its first name, the Great Kill or the Great Kill District. The Great Kill. But kill here meaning creek. Yes. Or body of water. Mm -hmm. Now, back in the day, and I mean in the 18th century, New Yorkers often used the banks of creeks for unpleasant purposes, for potter's fields, for instance, or as places for public executions to destroy those who had committed heinous crimes. And we talked about that, Greg, uh, in our Halloween show last year mm -hmm. um, when we discussed Washington Square Park uh, and its time as both a potter's field but also as a place of execution. Mm -hmm. And such a place was here as well, further north of Washington Square Park. It was here that a sailor... Now, we don't know the name of the sailor. We only know him today as the Old Moor. Now, this name may describe ethnicity, his ethnicity or his race, or it might just be a nickname. I mean, we'll never know. But this man, for the crime of mutiny, was hung on this spot. It was here at the Great Kill, and his body was then thrown into the potter's field that was nearby. But the old moor was clearly restless, for his ghost has haunted this spot ever since. An unfortunate detail that was unknown, it seems, to the individual who then built the carriage house and stable on this spot. Now, many years later, a young coachman and his pregnant wife moved into the carriage house. When was this? Late 18th century, early 19th century. You know, life was very simple and carefree for them. The coachman was actually employed in the burgeoning carriage trade industry that was developing around here. Well, one evening, his wife was on that second floor, the one that Miss Shaw would later stand out on. His wife was on the second floor looking out for her husband to come home. You know, recently, mediums and ghost hunters have have visited Clinton Court, and it's from one medium's report in particular that described her the following way, the coachman's wife, quote, she has dark hair, blue eyes, light complexion, in her middle teens, and wears a pretty dress, almost like a nightgown. Now, she was standing out there looking for her husband when, looking down towards the stables, she saw a figure standing there all in black really just like a mound just sort of shifting and twisting forward rather unnaturally moving in these unusual ways he slowly started walking towards the steps as though he was going to come up the stairs and meet up with the coachman's wife well the woman was st stricken with fright and she jolted back, but got caught in her dress. And then she tumbled forward, tumbled down the steps. When her husband found her later, she was near death. She was mortally wounded and frozen with fright. Well, doctors were able to deliver her, her newborn infant, but the coachman's wife died that very evening. And so this coachman's wife then is the ghost who Mrs. Shaw saw. Mm-hmm. And then the old moor. These two ghosts haunt the carriage house here. Well, actually, there are three ghosts. So these two specters were joined a few decades later by another. So we're moving the story forward into the late 19th century, after those tenements have now been constructed, and this area is truly a courtyard. Now, everyone 
in the neighborhood knew the stories of the old moor and knew the stories of the coachman's wife. I mean, we tell these stories today like they're like fresh new information. But in fact, these ghost stories, the ghosts of Clinton Court, they've been known for over 150 years. But at this point now, in the late 19th century, Hell's Kitchen was a crowded working class neighborhood and its streets were filled with all kinds of activity. But there were no playgrounds. In fact, it wouldn't even be until the early 20th century that the city even properly took on playground development. Kids were playing in the streets. They were playing on the sidewalk. They were playing wherever they could find a space to play. And so if you were used to that, playing in the street, then there would be nothing more attractive than a courtyard, right? I mean, that seemed very safe. Sure, included. Well, the problem is is that this courtyard was already, by this time, known to be haunted. And children whispered to each other about terrible things that had been heard and seen here. Well, one day, there was a very bold girl. We think that her name was Margaret. Well, she decided that she was certainly not afraid. In fact, she was going to play a little prank. She was going to dress up as a ghost. She would pull a sheet over her head, hide in the courtyard, hide up the steps, and wait for the first unsuspecting visitor. And then she would leap out, and then they would all have a good laugh. Well, so she found the sheet, she put it over her head, she went down the alley, she went into the courtyard, and then she went and hid up the steps. She hunched over In her sheet, there was a little slit cut into it so that she could just see out of the sheet. And from where she was crouched, she could just look down towards the stable. Soon, she heard some sounds. It was the sounds of horses inside the stable who, they just began to stir, make a little bit of commotion, as though someone was agitating them. She peered over the step to see what was upsetting the horses. Perhaps the owner of the carriage house was returning home. Instead, she saw a figure, all in black, a solid form, in the shape of a man. And he was joined by the figure of a woman. But she she was barely there. It was almost a hint. It was just a hint of her. But... You could see the outline, and her skirt was moving as though she were standing in a strong wind. Well, at once, both of these entities, both of these these beings, moved towards the girl, were moving towards the steps. Well, Margaret, she leapt up to escape, but she got caught in her sheet that she was wearing over her head. She became turned around and twisted in her sheet. She lost her footing and suddenly tumbled down the stairs, screaming as she kept tumbling down the steps, tumbling to the ground and into the embrace of the old moor and the coachman's wife. Please tell me that's the end of the story. As as far as we know... These are the three main ghosts of Clinton Court. However, there have been other documented sightings that don't fit the characteristics of these particular spirits. Today, it's private property. So So maybe we should just leave Clinton Court. Let's leave it behind. Shut the black... Shut the black iron gate we to, were the never Alloway, here. to the Alloway to Terror and and go let's go somewhere else, Tom. Take us to take us I feel like I need a drink after that story. Actually. I think you probably do. And we're on forty sixth Street, right? Mm-hmm. So why don't we just head over to the landmark tavern, which is a drinking and, and dining uh neighborhood fixture. It's an establishment that opened in this three story building here uh in eighteen sixty eight. That's 150 years ago, Greg. And specifically in October of 1868. So even 150 years ago this month. Wow. Now, the neighborhood has clearly changed quite a bit since 1868. But about the only thing that hasn't changed 
are a few of the bar's regulars, a few people who appear to the diners downstairs from time to time and the tenants upstairs, because this is the story of the haunted landmark of Hell's Kitchen. Well, Tom, you and I know the landmark very well. We even mm-hmm. had a, a Patreon event there, I think, a couple of years ago. And it's a warm, lively place. I love it there. But it d- doesn't seem, like, creepy in any, in any way. No. Not to a novice. The landmark is in Western Hell's Kitchen. It's all the way over to 11th Avenue and 46. That was, in fact... When it opened in 1868, closer to the Hudson River than it is today, uh, because landfill, you know, would later be added to the island to create 12th Avenue and the area west of it. But at the time, there wasn't any 12th Avenue, and so 11th was really as close to the water as you got. And the tavern was immediately, you know, a popular watering hole with sailors and longshoremen, people who were working at the docks nearby. According to the book, the New York Chronology, when it opened in October of 1868, quote, it served roast beef and mashed potatoes for 35 cents, fish and chips for 20 cents, corn, beef, and cabbage for 45 cents, beer for 5 cents a pint, whiskey for 10 cents a shot. Its initial patrons are mostly dock workers, merchant seamen, and the like. Sounds like a place I'd enjoy, I think, if I were in 1868. Uh, Who built this place? Well, it was opened by a man named Patrick Henry Carley. He opened the tavern downstairs, and he built the second and third floors to house his family. It would remain like that, largely unchanged, into the early 20th century, although its second floor would be transformed during Prohibition uh, into a speakeasy. But eventually, the downstairs would be reopened as a pub afterwards, and it would become, you know, a popular institution in a neighborhood that, as you mentioned, was pretty rough and tumble for much of the 20th century. I believe you're suggesting that there might have been gangs that uh, frequented the tavern? In particular, the Westies, the gang who you mentioned, made this a kind of home base in the 1980s. Hopefully they were on better behavior at this particular place. Has it been open this entire time? Well, it actually closed in 2004, uh, but it was reopened after a beautiful restoration. And so when you visit today, it's you really feel like you're walking into a bar in another era. It's almost like a movie set in, yeah. in a certain way. It's been beautifully redone. I went there uh, for brunch just this past Sunday. You walk in... Uh, you find a nice, long, you know, gorgeous mahogany bar carved from a single tree. That's on your right when you walked in. Meanwhile, on your left are these tidy white linen covered tables that are set down on the original white tiled mosaic floors. And overhead, there's an old tin stamp ceiling. You know, the walls have rather spooky period black and white photos of the tavern and the neighborhood. And in the back is a larger room for parties. Well, you're definitely selling me on the historic part uh-huh. of this, but is this is it actually haunted? Uh, yes, indeed it is. Because this is one tavern where the spirits flow freely. Three, in fact, three spirits are known to haunt the bar. Now, the saddest is a young girl who left Ireland in the 19th century she lived with her family upstairs here in the bar. And it was here that she's believed to have died of typhoid fever, upstairs in her bedroom. She has been seen um, wandering. And it's here on the third floor where she's been seen wandering the third floor hallway back and forth, back and forth. But meanwhile, one flight down on the second floor, There's a Confederate veteran from the Civil War. He's still kicking around. One night long ago, he stumbled into the bar. He had been mortally injured after a bar fight. He stumbled in off the street. And incredibly, he made it up the stairs where he collapsed into a bathtub. But get this, the bathtub is still up there on the second floor. 
as is his spirit. He still hangs around the tub, kind of like it's his final resting place. It's sort of like a like a porcelain coffin. It's next to the tavern's party room, and the old veteran has been known to get himself into trouble, knocking books off the bookshelf, spooking the guests. And what about the third ghost? Oh, he's the most famous, for that is the ghost of film actor George Raft, who grew up in Hell's Kitchen, and he spent, you know, his career playing a lot of, like, gangster types in movies in the 1930s and 40s. In fact, he starred in the 1947 film Intrigue with June Havoc. And he lived here in the neighborhood and was a regular here at the Landmark Tavern. And although he died in 1980, he's been reported to still hang out at the bar downstairs. Reported by who exactly? Reported by the other guys at the bar. <laughs> Which, they, they may not be the most reliable sources, uh, but still, we'll take it. But Greg, I'm going to tell you about my experience at the Landmark Tavern. Mm-hmm. Because on Sunday, when brunching there on my own, a delicious Eggs Benedict mimosa came with it. Mm-hmm. I asked a man working there um, if he had ever you know, experienced anything unusual. Not me, he said. But plenty of others here have reported things. And at that point, the woman at the table next to me perked up I was just in the bathroom, and suddenly the whole room shook, she said. It was more than a sound. It shook. The man who works there, he nodded. We get that often, he said. So was this some kind of spirit? Was this some kind of ghost in the women's room? Well, according to my source, the guy who works there, the the restroom was constructed under a staircase, leading upstairs. And he said that whenever anyone goes up the staircase, the bathroom rattles a bit. But this didn't seem to convince the diner sitting next to me. And to tell you the truth, I didn't see anyone heading for the stairs. So maybe it was the Confederate soldier just heading home to his bathtub. Well, both Tom and I and the many ghosts that have been featured on the show lift a toast to 150 years of the Landmark Tavern uh, to 150 years more of haunted bathtubs and staircases. (laughs) You can see photos, images. Not too many, but some. Of <laughs> photos of June Havoc. June Havoc, Clinton Court, yes. A landmark Tavern. And more on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You should also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now, we're going to see many of you in just a couple weeks for our live ghost stories of old New York at Joe's Pub. Now, the reason we haven't been pushing the tickets earlier in the show is because they all were sold out. So thank you all for buying tickets. And and we are incredibly humbled, in fact, that we have sold out those three shows on Sunday, the 28th and the two shows on Halloween proper. So, by the way, if you're going to one of those shows We do hope that you'll show up in something spooky. (laughs) Costumes are not required. But but always appreciated. (laughs) Those who support us on Patreon will actually get audio of that show. So if you would like to hear it, even if you can't make it, if you'd like to experience what a live ghost story show is like, just head on over to patreon.com and become a a supporter of 
the Bowery Boys. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. In addition, patrons will also get the second episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club next week. And appropriately, the movie this month is Ghostbusters. <laughs> so you have one week to watch Ghostbusters before that show comes out. Meanwhile, we'd love for you to join us in the streets. We've launched the Bowery Boys walking tours at BoweryBoysWalks.com because, get this, I'm really excited to announce that we have a couple new tours. We've added a tour called Glamour, Greed, Mayhem, and Murder in 19th Century NoHo. That is led by Carl Raymond, and there are tours in November It's going to be a lot of fun. That's on sale now. And also, there's a tour called Christmas in Old New York. It's a walk uh, past many of the iconic sites that have become a part of the American Christmas tradition. That is a special limited nighttime tour, and it's led by Jeff Dobbins, who is also leading our Landmarks and Legends Broadway tour, uh, which also has new dates available in November and December. So for much more on this and to join us in the streets, head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you for joining us on our ghostly tour through Hell's Kitchen. What happened to the donuts, Greg? It looks like Lucy is no longer hungry. (laughs) Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 